Welcome to the Student Affairs Spectacular, the weekly podcast giving you a front row seat to the greatest student affairs show on earth. And now your ringmasters, Tom Kriegelstein and Dustin Ramsdell. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Student Affairs Spectacular podcast. Dustin here, and this is episode number 87 with Tyler Miller. Uh, We're talking about student development theories for this episode, uh, part one of a two-part series uh, about student development theories. Uh, This one with Tyler, who is a practitioner uh, who's worked in residence life for many, many years. And we will have a faculty member in a higher ed program for part two uh, next week. But uh, Tyler shares some awesome perspectives and experiences with theories, kind of going from one end of being dismissive of theories to uh, embracing them and integrating them uh, and integrating theories into his professional life and his perspective working with students and um yeah we just try to cover the gamut of uh where we've been where we are and where we're going with theories uh where we need to kind of compensate for some blind spots with theories and um just how to best integrate them into um, your professional lives so uh, really excited to get into this topic it's one that uh, i wanted to get into for a while and very happy that uh, tyler has given us some of his time to uh, talk about it and after this brief word about our sponsor this is episode number 87 with tyler miller All right. And before we get into the episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, the National Center for Student Life, which hosts the National Conference on Student Leadership coming up next November 19th to the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Since 1978, NCSL has trained thousands of students and advisors in heart-centered, values-based leadership skills designed to help drive transformative change within the individual. And I've personally spoken at NCSL for the past five years, and I've seen firsthand how the NCSL conference helps students and advisors apply learning to address real challenges both on their campus and in their community through the NCSL Call to Action program. NCSL truly brings together the country's best leadership presenters into one place to give both the students and advisors a life-changing experience. And I'm always, I'm always blown away at the level of value received from their conferences. Also, I should note that NCSL was the first to offer students the opportunity to earn a digital badge to document their leadership development. So if you're looking for a national leadership conference to attend, I highly, I can't highly more recommend checking out NCSL at nationalcenterforstudentlife.com. That's nationalcenterforstudentlife.com. With that, let's get this show on the road. So, yeah, so how is uh, the new job there going? I know you just started a little bit ago. Yeah, it is great. I love it. It's very relational, which is kind of, you know, I like getting to meet professionals and mentor and, you know, do a lot of listening and just kind of helping out when I can. And so it's it's been fun this first couple weeks getting adjusted. So, yeah, it's been good. Nice. And, uh, and it's on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Uh, uh when I get, and I'm not up in my California geography of where everything is placed. Like, did you have to, to move or anything? Or was it still, like, close enough to commute to or whatever? I don't know what that, what that process was no, like. No, it, it's about, like, four hours driving by myself, um, about 200 miles away. So it, it was a significant move for our family. Um, our oldest is struggling because, you know, she had to move away from all her friends uh, yeah. in Fresno. But um, whenever we go out to the beach she kind of forgets about that and has a great time. So um, it's just, it's, it, it was a pretty significant move for us. 
you know, had to pack up our house. We moved from a three-bedroom house into a two-bedroom apartment. Mm-hmm. I guess I didn't forget how big California actually is. Like, because I don't know, is that like the length of California, or is there even like some more to go that you could drive that would take you more than four it hours? More, oh yeah, it's more than it was more the width. So we went from kind of the Central Valley to the Central Coast. So it's not like Sanford, like Humboldt would be the northernmost, and San Diego would be the southernmost, and that's you know fourteen, fifteen hours. You know, it's it's basically New York to Florida. It's oh, basically, wow. you know, I grew up on the East Coast, so um, it it is weird. You know, you can travel fifteen hours and still be in the same state. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, that does that puts it in a little more like size dimensional context there of like uh, how big yep. it actually is. But yeah, that's, that's wild. Cool. So. Um, yeah, so we'll just uh, jump in here, and we will uh, we will start as we always do. If you want to just want to give an introduction of yourself and how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, my name is Tyler Miller. I am currently the assistant director of housing here at UCSB. Um, I started my journey on the East Coast. Um, my first residential living experience was going to a boarding school for my junior senior high school um, outside of Philadelphia. Um, wanted to go as far away as I could to college, so I found myself at UC Santa Barbara. Um, as an undergrad, I was president of my building my freshman year, went to a conference, a NACUR conference, actually, um, and went to a career student affairs um, lunch, and they said, you could get paid to do this. And I was like, you know, I love what I do. Let me do that. <laughs> became an RA. Uh, I'm sorry, became president of the Residence Hall Association, an RA, an ARD, and then it, the rest was history. Um, I worked at Chico State for about eight years. Took a year off to, in the middle of that to teach junior high and decided I'd much rather deal with drunk college students than sober junior high kids. I have the <laughs> utmost respect for junior high teachers. It is a crazy, crazy job. Um, worked at Sonoma State for three years, um, which is really kind of where I fell in love with theory. I, you know, Up until that point, I hated it. Um, but really, that was kind of where um, I fell in love with theory. Um, worked for about nine months at CSU Stanislaus that I don't like talking about. And then for eight years prior, I was at Fresno State as the assistant director there. Um, and so that's kind of my educational journey um, to get to where I am today. So I'm kind of home. I, I did my undergrad here at UCSB, and now I find myself back here 20 years later as a professional. Oh, wow. That's, that's poetic, I guess. That's, like, <laughs> it's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and you said, like, you kind of have an affinity, or I guess you grew into an affinity for theory and since you've uh, worked at different places and uh, done a lot of different things and just to start out also to have a bit of a foundation, just kind of give like the, you know, very cliff notes version of what a student development theory is and what it's used for, um, why they exist. And I guess, well, well, I guess we'll save other stuff. So it's not like a huge question, but just kind of lay out for people, even just from your perspective, you know, what are student development theories? What do they do and, and why do they even exist? Yeah. You know, it's just, that's a complex question, and you ask 10 student affairs professionals their, their, their answer to that, you'll get 12 different answers. So yeah. for me, theory is an excellent way to predict behavior um, and to explain things that don't sometimes make sense to us, mm-hmm. to help us make decisions in how we move forward. I think that ultimately was what it comes down to for me, um, you know, a, a friend of mine said it helps us organize the chaos of the work we do. Um, and so to me, that's really what it is and, and why it exists. I mean, I mean, some of it, though, is to, to justify, you know, our, our practice. 
practice, you know, to, to explain why we are important as student affairs practitioners, you know, that, that's why theory exists, but um, it legitimizes the work we do. But, but I think ultimately, in, in what I've seen is it helps us predict the behavior of our students and our staff um, as best they can. Right. Um, and in all the different positions that you've had and stuff, like what are some examples of the application of theories uh, in practice? And it is just to, um, you know, highlight, I guess, where I guess maybe, yeah, I guess uh, just anecdotal examples, I guess, would be great just to kind of give an example. Yeah. You know, for me, I've seen it most effectively be used in when mentoring, guiding students and professionals. You know, when I have somebody who comes to me who's struggling with a student or a meeting or, or a particularly difficult case, I can point them to a, to a theory and, and just basically have them discover the why of what the student's going through and to help them normalize, to say, you're not crazy. There's actually people who have researched this, and, and here's what they've come up with. And so it really helps them see the journey of most um, of us, the rest of us are, are, are going to, through. So I think to me that's where I've seen it used best, is just helping mentor and develop students and staff to say, you're not crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Like if there's yeah, somebody having like a difficult time, cause I know I'm in the beginning of my professional journey. So sometimes there is like frustrating situations for myself where it's just like, you know, why isn't this student listening to me? Or like, why aren't they doing it? It's like, okay, I can, you know, sort of predict behavior or just give like, uh, yeah, kind of an explanation for, uh, what may be leading them to act in the way that they are. And, um, you know, obviously best case scenario, how might I help guide them along to kind of further develop and grow and learn and, uh, make more positive choices and stuff. Well, I guess something that I'm, that I'm thinking about that, that kind of just popped in my head, like, do you see it kind of be, I guess maybe, maybe this isn't like a, it's a, it's not a fair barometer, but I think a lot of people will say it's like, well, it never even like comes up in conversations when we're in meetings and stuff. Like somebody isn't going to say like, well, according to this theory, we should do the, you know, that's just like, I haven't had an experience where people talk that way. Is that not like a fair barometer for how it actually gets applied into practice? I think that's, different depending on the school. Yeah. I have colleagues who work at schools who that is the deciding factor of their decisions they make. I've never worked at an institution like that, you know, but I have colleagues who have it. And so I think it's hard to paint with such a broad brush, you know, where it's used lay. Again, I think there, there is value in saying, you know, we're going to make this decision because the research shows this is where things go and this is what works. You know, I, I, I think there's some value in that. Um, I, I think for me where I've seen, you know, re and, and we're kind of crossing over between theory and research. I mean, I think there's a, there's a gray area between there, but I, right. I've used research a lot to make decisions, you know? And so um, you know, when I worked at Fresno state, for example, um, the overarching philosophy was the social change model. And so decisions were made based on the idea that, you know, civil, civil engagement and community service is a vehicle for leadership. And so, you know, when the president of the university threw down the challenge of the university's campus that, you know, I want faculty, staff and students to, you know, serve a million hours over the course of the next academic year, those were decisions based on the social change model. So I think it just really depends on the university. But most effectively, again, I think it comes down to that one-on-one -on -one interaction. For when I have a staff member struggling, like with a with a student, 
to say, are you familiar with Kohlberg or, you know, hey, you know, when's the last time you took a look at Kohlberg? Because you're talking about a student who's acting like my eight-year-old daughter. Well, that's normal. And so how do we move them from that stage of development to a different stage? All right. Well, I think that's uh, the points you made is certainly a good one to um, to emphasize that theories and research very much like kind of coexist together because theories are usually based on research. It's not just someone sitting alone in an office being like, hmm, this is what I think that people are like. And then they just like publish it, whatever. Like they base it on some sort of study and, you know, patterns of behavior and those sort of things. So um, certainly uh, theories do not exist in a vacuum of uh, any sort of study and research and that kind of stuff. But um, when I guess, I don't know, sort of one of the questions I had of like, you know, whether they should be, you know, emphasized more or less, I guess, again, sort of what you're saying is like a, different institutions utilize them in different ways or, you know, really if they utilize them at all or not. But um, I guess maybe if it's even just like the very broad discussions that you see online or with, you know, people at different places, do you feel like they are emphasized more or less or do they need to be emphasized more or less? Like, I don't know if we're in maybe like a stage where, um, I don't know, maybe we need some like updated theories or something. I don't know like what, what your belief is, I guess, of uh, whether they need to be emphasized more or less. Well, I, I mean, to me as a practitioner, I, to develop my own knowledge base for the, the, the field I've chosen, I, I always want to be researching and digging more into theory and, and helping me because it helps me become a better practitioner. And I've been doing this, you know, I started 90 as a student, you know, in an RA 91 or 92, I, there's still things that I'm learning today. And there's some exciting new stuff coming out. Um, and so I think if, if I were counseling or mentoring a, a professional coming into the field, it'd be like, as an individual, you've got to be digging in and researching and, you know, engaging in theory. You know, it, it's going to help you, you know, but is it necessary you know I, there, there's been debate about you know whether it, it, it's a requirement or not and I, I think for me i've been a part of institutions where theory was it wasn't even a part of the conversation and they've been successful you know when you look at the metrics of you know student satisfaction you look at the metrics of you know academic success and retention you know they're doing a good job and and they're not aware or digging into theory Mm-hmm. Um, I know institutions who are struggling who who don't have a theoretical foundation. You know, I, I also know stu- you know de- departments that highly focus on theory, but all their staffs miserable and their students don't like living in their communities. And, and again, I, I, I I'm biased because I approach this from a housing professional because that's all twenty you know one years of my mm-hmm. you know twenty four years of my experience has been in housing. But so so to me, theory isn't as important as things like empathy or things like positive attitude, or dealing with change in a, in a positive way. I mean, those are skills that I think are much more valuable. But to me, theory provides a solid foundation. Um, but if you get so hyper-focused on it, it, it I think it's, it's more of a detriment. Yeah, it certainly can be limiting. Um, and yeah, and I think like what you're saying of like skills like empathy being important, it certainly, I think, theories help you like get out of your own experience because I think they can be very informative about what different people go through where their journeys take them and where they might be at when they come to campus and um, there's certainly a discussion to be had like you're saying like kind of applying it to a functional area with housing 
you know, if you, yeah, if you get so hyper-focused on like one theory and you design a residence hall based on that one theory, which could be good or bad, like, you know, the idea of people getting out of their comfort zone and kind of being, you know, a little uncomfortable and stuff. And that's, you know, perhaps where some growth would happen, but it's also like, well, you can't be so hyper-focused and you do just need to like, I don't know, be a human being and not just like a theory robot or something. And just like, you know, I don't know, like actually engage with people in like a, a sort of a rational, kind of natural way, I guess. Well, um, well, the inherent problem with theory is it's based on a group of students that no longer exist on our campuses. Right. I mean, our students every year are changing. The, the theories in, that are out there are based on students that were researched some of them 40 or 50 years ago mm-hmm. that we're still using as, as foundational. And there's value in that, but the, you can't lose sight of who our students are today on our campuses. Because, you know, the students that I work with at UCSB are very different than students that I work with at Fresno State. We're very different than the students that I worked with at Sonoma State. And they have different needs. They have different desires. And, and so theory can't – theory doesn't help us be nimble in dealing with change. Um, but they can be foundational in that change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something else that I thought of is like, um, and this is kind of leading well to my next question, but, um, you know, if you're not really well-versed in theory now, but you're keeping up on like, you know, news articles and everything like that, like if you just got an article that said like 70% of students are doing this, like theory might put into context, you know, why that is happening because of where they're at in a certain theoretical framework and then also what might be able to be done to change that behavior or something. But again, it's nothing's ever perfect, but I think it can help guide, you know, when all you're getting is just like a statistic, it's like, okay, well, you know, I don't know what to do about this or what's making it happen. And if on my campus, the 30% of your students that don't behave in that way comprise 70% of my students, Mm-hmm. that theory is not going to be as valuable on my campus. Yeah. You know, and so I think that's, that's the other piece of this is, you know, and, and we're in a society now that loves the soundbite, that loves the snippets. And so, you know, 70% of college students do X. Well, okay, but on my campus, that's not my reality. And, and I think we've got to be able to, to dig even further into that theory to say, you know, that doesn't, that, that's, that's a, theory based on privilege because the only research that's been done is on white heterosexual males, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's not the, the, the majority on my campus or vice versa. And so I think to me, that's where we, what, what's more important is thinking critically about the practice, you know, and I think sometimes people get stuck in theory and, and they get enmeshed with it that they, they stop trying to think critically. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. Well, and I guess it's sort of like the next question I want to get to, I feel like this uh, is leading well into, you know, what do you see as being next? Like what's missing and where do we need to go if we're really just kind of zoomed in on, you know, you know, kind of advice and uh, sort of ideas for, you know, student, you know, student development theories, what's missing and where do we need to go or where are we going currently? Like, I know there is some, some people, uh, working on stuff now and i think it just mm-hmm. definitely takes time to like you know proliferate and kind of get into the zeitgeist and stuff but you know right. what's next where are we going and what's missing i guess that should be addressed if you like well i think one of the most exciting things out there is how do these theories apply to students in digital spaces and then integrated spaces Joe, dr josie alquist is doing some amazing work looking how we approach students 
in those virtual spaces. You know, up, taking things like social change model and applying it to digital and virtual spaces, to me, is groundbreaking work. You know, one, you know, my approach is to start looking theory, at theories from a three-dimensional approach. You know, the first dimension is really what current research practice looks like, which is really how students develop in the real world. You know, most of the research has been done in real spaces. You know, how do students, you know, develop an identity in these real spaces with very little focus on what this tap, what looks like on, in virtual spaces. So to me, a second dimension would be how do these students engage in these purely digital spaces? You know, one of the things that we're looking at here at UCSB that I'm really excited about is potentially having a resident director of virtual spaces or a resident advisor of virtual spaces whose job it is is to, you know, engage in our residential community in these digital virtual spaces. I mean, why do we put resident advisors on the floor with our residents? Because we want them to live and engage in their communities. But we've been so afraid to do that online. And, and, and so, um, but that's only... a. a Another one dimension is just looking at it digitally. To me, the third dimension is an integrated space where we're engaging with students in digital spaces and real spaces, and we teach students how to engage in both. You know, so when you look at things like the social change model and, you know, Josie talks about, you know, your consciousness of self and, you know, have you Googled yourself and what's, how conscious of, are you of your online identity? You know, that, those are questions that we've just scratched the surface on. Um, and, and, you know, how, in an integrated space, you know, how congruent is your digital identity with your real identity in real spaces? You know, those are questions, I think, that are, that are going to change the way we do business um, in our field. And, and, and I've got to give credit, you know, to my students because, you know, three years ago, I think it was, I was teaching a leadership class and was talking about leadership theory and the history of leadership theory from great man approaches to reciprocal to chaos theories. And I asked them, I said, you know, 50 years from now, what are, what are students going to be talking about in their leadership class? You know, and, and they brought up, you know, well, Tyler, if you look at online digital spaces, they're still in trait theory, great man approaches. You know, it's not as reciprocal online, and it's, it's certain traits get you to leadership in, in digital spaces. And I was like, you are, you are right on to something. So to me, <laughs> yeah. that is, you know, where we're going. You know, because, and ultimately we've got to decide as a society what our end game is. You know, is our end game that we want to build a community and a society where we don't leave the house, um, you know, where everything is digital? And, and I think to me that's kind of where the current is taking us. We haven't really discussed, though, you know, how do we say we value face-to-face -face interactions more than digital without minimizing the value of those digital interactions? Because I think right now we're in this dichotomous viewpoint of either you've got to say digital spaces are valuable or not. And I think it's, it's, there, there's a middle ground here that we're not discussing because I don't want to live in a society where it's all about staying at home, you're engaging in a computer screen. There's value in, in interacting face-to-face. -face. And as higher education practitioners, we've got to be leading the way in that to say no there's value engaging digitally and what our students are forming in terms of digital communities has value. But ultimately as a society, we've got to bring them into real spaces. And so, you know, when we're looking at a, a virtual resident director or virtual resident advisor, the metric of success has to be how are you engaging in these communities and bringing them into real spaces, which is the challenge. You know, when I asked the students, they had a lot of ways to get people 
face-to-face interacting online because that's that's the current of our of our society. The, the question was, how do we get students who are super engaged online in real spaces? The students had a real struggle with that question. You know, the, the only thing they came up with was LARPing, you know, which for me at the time, I didn't know what it was. And, and as I did more research, I'm like, yeah, that's probably one way to get students out of those digital spaces into real world spaces. But we don't have a lot of engagement on that topic. So to me, that is where we're headed. And I think that's what we're missing because our students may never leave the room, but they're super engaged and, and we're missing the boat on that. And we don't teach them. Like Josie, Dr. Alquist is saying, leaders are made, not born, but we're not taking that and developing and making digital leaders. And, and I think that work to me is formative. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really great perspective. And you know, there's definitely uh, a lot of cool new stuff coming out in that, in that space. And we'll link to uh, Josie's website where she uh, graciously shares a lot of her perspectives like through blog posts and some of her presentations and videos and stuff so um, it's definitely very accessible out there and we'll uh, make sure to include it in the show notes and um, yeah that's so fascinating like a virtual resident director because yeah like a lot of my experiences in residence life as well I'm just like it's like yeah that would be important because yeah it's like it's sort of a, a you know a feedback loop of yeah like something happens in real life and it ha- you know ends up online which then informs real life stuff and it sort of circles it around there and you know uh there's certainly possibilities for yeah sort of managing that that loop but then also just like augmenting real life i think that's where right. it seems like it makes the most sense of like yeah it's like somebody doesn't have to exist in a purely digital world they could be sort of augmented in the real world through you know the idea of something like a like a google glass or something like that sort of thing where it's like oh let me like you know, find this information for you in real life. You know, I can find it digitally right. through like some sort of resource or, you know, uh, facilitate some sort of meetup and, you know, something where people just get together uh, in person. But, uh, but I, I've got a great stuff, example but, of that yeah. for you, Dustin. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, 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 and, you know we, we go back and forth on Yik Yak. But for me, you know, I check Yik Yak probably once or twice a day. And I, I was working at a different institution and, uh, you know, you know, I get up at 4.30 in the morning and all, you know, 6, 6 a.m. they're starting to be, you know, posts, prayers going out to this fraternity, you know, and this student who fell off the roof or, you know, hey, keeping you in my thoughts and prayers and seeing this on Yik Yak and going, huh, student fell off the roof is an on hospital life support. I, you know, so I called my boss because I don't know if the student's a resident or not. I said, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. This is what they're talking about on Yik Yak. And she's like, okay, you know, and, and she's like, once everybody gets in, I'll call the Greek life advisor and, and make sure they're aware of it. Well, nine o'clock rolls around. The director who oversaw the Greek life area had no clue. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is something students were talking about 435 in the morning, you know, and, and, and it's something that, you know, was very real for them. And this was their outlet. Likewise, on Yik Yak, there was a student who was talking about he was sexually assaulted. You know, and, and, and what do I do? And, you know, and being able to direct him to, hey, have you heard about the counseling center? And you, and you got to do it in a way that you, you don't sound like a like an administrator. Mm-hmm. You, you got to pull the like, I think there's an, a counseling center on campus that could help and kind of play that play the feeling like a student card. But you know, following up with that student two weeks later, going back to that yak and saying, hey, did you ever go in there and having him say, oh, yeah, it was great. You know, thank you for, for letting me know about it. I mean, there's that that's a digital application with real life positive implications now certainly i'm not saying yik yak is the most positive area because it's not but it's real i mean and i would argue yik yak is more real for a lot of our students than than 
walking down the hallway and seeing who's out in the lounge. Mm-hmm. You know, but but I think those are things that have transferability um, that 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 I think we can tap into that we're not. Now, do we need to monitor YCAG? No, just like we don't put cameras in students' rooms and we don't have an RA in everybody's room, but we have an RA on the floor to engage. And, and you know, if the RA sees something, they need to address it. And, and you know, I've had staff like, well, what happens if I see something online? And my response is like, well, what would happen if you saw it in the real world? They're like, well, this is what I do. I'm like, well, why would you do anything different? Mm-hmm. Why is there a difference? You, you saw that student drinking. Um, well, what about privacy? I'm like, you saw it. You know, if a student had their door open and they were drinking, would you say, oh, no, they have privacy? I'm like, no, you would address it. But we, and, I ha- and I forget a mentor who, who shared that with me. It's like we want to say these digital spaces are very different, but the reality is they're not. They're, they're, it's no different than walking down a hallway. You know, and, and, and if a student wants privacy, they're not posting it on these you know, spaces. And if they're not wanting, you know, and, and one of the new things on our camp on at UCSB that I've discovered, I've been educated on is Yeti. I don't know if you've heard of Yeti yet. I have not heard um, of it. No. It is basically yik yak meets Instagram, and and it is it is bad. But you know, some of the students are smart. They don't show their face. They don't show where they're at. Other students are like, here's my face. Look, oh, it's my residence hall room, and here's me smoking a bong. <laughs> it's like you know. It, we can't ignore that. I mean, especially in our culture about risk management, that if we don't do it and something goes wrong, we're going to be held liable for it. So we might as well engage the way we engage in the real world. So I, I think to me, those are the, the, that's the future. Um, you know, and as people in the middle, you know, the people of, a lot of the people above us, sometimes they don't understand it, you know, and, and we have people who um, are students who understand it and have much more power because of how much they're engaged in it. And, and that's a weird place to be, is that when you look at power differentials, you know, the internet and digital spaces kind of equalizes that playing field a little bit. Right. Which is, I think, why, why administrators have such a hard time, because they want to control it, and they can't. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, this is just, uh, you know, sort of a tangent, but it, I mean, it directly connects, because like, the, the point that you were, were making about where we're kind of at right now with theory is, is that like, the kind of the, the foundational theories and stuff like they don't directly apply like it's a very indirect thing where it still can inform the work but that you know they studied students that you know it's not reflective of who we're actually serving now and like stuff you know about uh, the digital space and stuff is very much more where we're at so i think you know we're starting to catch up with kind of uh, current reality uh, in terms of theoretical bases and stuff like that but um what are uh, yeah go ahead go ahead but, I mean, how interesting would it be is to take Kohlberg's moral development model and apply it to digital spaces, you know, and looking at how does morality develop in these digital spaces for our students? You know, how do you get from somebody who doesn't care and posts on Facebook, you know, in a public setting, pictures of them, you know, doing cocaine to somebody who, you know, would would, would engage in that and and, and, and upset by that you know how does morality develop online that how interesting a field that would be and what an opportunity for a dissertation um to be done on applying those models i think there's application of them Mm -hmm. but it's just what does it now look like yeah yeah i think that's probably where uh yeah it makes the most sense to kind of go next is just apply kind of the classic theories to this new 
uh, setting and see how things kind of shake out and stuff. So um, I look forward to seeing those kind of things. I, I want to see people out there exactly. put the challenge out to have some people remix uh, some of the classic stuff for the digital space. But um, I was just going to ask, I mean, it could be about stuff that you're like kind of in the, um, you know, digital uh, realm, but also just any sort of uh, theoretical things and stuff, just resources that you'd like to share, stuff that you feel like would be uh, relevant and applicable for uh, the audience of uh, professionals listening. Obviously, like we've talked about Dr. Alquist's blog, her information to me is the cutting edge stuff. Um, I, I think one of the newer um, resources that I have found that like within the last year that was new for me um, is the Student Leadership Competencies Guidebook. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but uh, Corey Seemiller, um, S-E-E-M-I-L-L-E-R, wrote this book. And she basically took all of the different competencies with leadership and basically created almost a job description with like 12 overarching competencies and then within those competencies, um, sub-competencies in a sense. And then she even gives you resources to track. How do they track back to um, things like, you know, a Kuhoi body of knowledge or um, cast. I think even that she even talks about the cast standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so she, she kind of connects them. And so that just over the last year, I think for me has been really helpful in, in moving forward with this new generation on how to help them become better leaders and better students. So that's one. Um, two, I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll shameless plug is because some of the geek ed stuff that we're doing out there with, you know, the higher ed, um, professionals who are, you know, going to San Diego Comic-Con and engaging geeks on higher education and then going to like an ACPA and engaging higher ed folks on our geek students and the research being done. You know, when I was at Fresno State, and again, Fresno is kind of, you know, it's a conservative, you know, 70% first-gen college students. You wouldn't, you know, a lot of people, I think conventional wisdom would say, you know, there are not going to be a lot of geeks there. But when we do the research, I mean, 30% of our students identified as a geek, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and looking at pop culture and looking at um, you know, gaming and things like that to where we did our first ever Fresno State Comic Con, we have 2,500 people show up, you know, with the largest housing program we ever did. I, I think there's some interesting things out there engaging some of our students who then those geek students could turn around and be the leaders in this digital evolution. I don't know that I would call it a revolution. I think it really is an evolution, but I think those students could be on the forefront of doing the research because they're, they're operating in a lot of those digital spaces. So, you know, you pose them a question of like, Hey, here's this Kohlberg moral development model over here in your digital spaces. How does that look like? How do students develop morality or do they, or is it just, you know, it's a free for all still the wild west. And, you know, how does that translate? And so I think those will be some of the students on the cutting edge of that. Some of the geek stuff, I know you've got some of those links on your blog mm-hmm. um, as well. And then, you know, I'll put out there just some of my favorite theories. Sanford's challenge and support um, is probably, you know, for those who may not be familiar with theory, to me, it's kind of the easiest theory. And it's like the most useful theory is that, you know, people learn when they have a balance of being both challenged and support. And one of my friends, Alan Davenport, would say, the problem with what people most missed about Sanford is that the student has to be ready. If the student isn't ready, Sanford says, your job is to build a supportive and challenging environment so that when they are ready, they can, you can help them grow. So Sanford would be my number one theory. Um, Kohlberg, the relational leadership model, all of the identity development models, again, people can Google those. Um, but to me, I, you know, 
one of my other, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of digressing here, but another, one of my most meaningful conversations about theory is when we intersected the spiritual identity development model with the sexual identity development model and looked for parallels and, and, and crossings. And to me, we, you know, we did a, a conference call about that. And, and it was just, it, it was amazing because it provided a framework to talk about a very difficult topic in a way that was more clinical and, and took some of the emotion out of it. Mm-hmm. So those would be some of my, my resources that I would give out there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll look to all that stuff in the, in the show notes so people can check it out. Um, and as we wrap up, we will close as we always do, just whatever final thoughts you would like to leave people with for the end of the episode here. So, you know, I, I've been thinking about this you know, I think for me, as someone who started out in, in the anti-theory camp, I mean, I was all about experience. I don't care what some researcher 50, 60, 30 years ago said. I know what I've experienced and what, ex- what I've experienced works. And I know because I've done it. I cannot tell you how valuable and enriching it has been to discover the wonders of theoretical concepts for the work we do. And again, I've got to give credit to Sonoma State um, Chuck Rhodes, Cindy Morizumi, and two of my colleagues, Alan Davenport and Julie Greathouse, who really, for me, challenged me to look beyond my experiences, that sometimes my experiences don't translate because not all the students are the same. And, and sometimes the research that's been done can help me become a better practitioner. Um, and it has made me such a better professional in the second half of my career. I really encourage folks just not to just dismiss it. Um, it can get boring and things like that, but honestly, mostly theory helps to just not freak out when something happens you've never experienced before or when something that's worked before is no longer working. And, and that's really what I would say to folks out there who may not be up on the up and up on theory. And they may not listen to this podcast, I don't know, but hopefully some of them might and might hear like, it's, it's okay, but at some point, it's going to be important for you to be a practitioner to understand the theory. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, that's why I uh, wanted to do this episode is just kind of, um, I don't know, like I haven't really talked about it a lot with other professionals. And I'm just in like the first year of my, my journey here, but it just, it seems like it's, yeah, some people do kind of scoff at it, you know, brush it aside sort of thing. And um, I think it does have value. It's, it's a, Thing that is not immune from critiques and feedback and all that and just i think needs to evolve and there yeah there's certain concepts like the challenge and support that are just simple and applicable or applicable and just like make sense and stuff and um yeah i just wanted to highlight yeah the idea is that hopefully people who are listening are the ones that would be like oh okay let me like go back to my theory books and kind of like refresh and really sort of integrate it back in and um, just celebrate theory for obviously what the, the benefit of it for sure i, I liken it a lot to marijuana <laughs> There are people out there who think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and there are people out there that think it is the most evil thing on the planet. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You know, it it is, you know, marijuana is neither highly toxic nor is it harmless. So let's, let's be real about it. And, you know, for those of you who are, who look at theory almost like a religion, you know, our our profession can't operate without it. it. It's hard for, there's a disconnect for me. Likewise, there's a disconnect for me who would, for those who would say it's useless and ridiculous. And I'd rather just like say there's good and there's bad. And, you know, let's work to make it better and use it to be better to serve the students we love and care about. And, and to me, that's really what it comes down to. 
yeah, that's uh, that metaphor works. That's exactly right. Um, just kind of depends how you use it, sort of thing. Um, and yeah, and I think that's it's, it's good stuff. Uh, it's a good perspective, really informative. And we'll also have um, uh, subsequent to this episode, an episode from a faculty member and their perspective in terms of uh, being someone who teaches it and how they kind of make it uh, applicable and uh, just sort of their perspective as well. So um, Tyler, I appreciate you uh, giving your insights and your perspective as a practitioner and having this important conversation. And uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are going to get good stuff out of it. And uh, yeah, just appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. All right. So that is it. And I will talk to you later. And again, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to help us out, leave us a review and rating on Stitcher or iTunes, or just share out the show so other people can find all the cool stuff we talk about every single week. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Student Affairs Spectacular Podcast.